0: Well, Dear friends, we're walking through the fourth chapter of the 1689 of creation, and we spent some time uh, last time, about a month ago, talking on this subject and talking about the ways in which what the scriptures say in the early chapters of Genesis are uh, inconsistent with um, what the culture tells us about the origin of man and the origin of the universe. But I want to Take a minute and just step back and consider what the authors of Scripture believed about the early pages of Scripture. What the authors of Scripture confessed about Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Um, what what even the Lord Jesus Christ said about the um, these parts of this, this narrative. Let's read paragraph 1 of chapter 4. Uh, once again it says... In the beginning it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days and all very good. And this is the question that I want us to answer today. Are the first 11 chapters of Genesis poetic or historical did the author of the first 11 chapters of genesis intend for you to read them and understand them in a literal way or did the writer intend for you to look at it as merely symbolic telling a telling a story in a symbolic fashion and that's what we're going to look at we're going to consider this idea what what did the biblical writers believe and what did Jesus believe? And that's going to be the totality of the study today is just to consider what the biblical writers believed about the first 11 chapters of Genesis and what Jesus believed about the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Because theology does not exist in a vacuum, theology does not exist all by itself on an island. It is like a web. One piece connects to other pieces, and so it is all together. And it is all connected. And you begin to move something, especially when it is foundational. You know, there's been some... I just talked with Pastor Fry about this illustration. But, you know, sometimes I'll be working on something in tile. And I'm I'm building something in that that very first row that you build. Suppose you're building something on a wall. And if you don't get that first level nice and straight and plumb and square. You're going to build that wall all the way up and it, you're going to have problems when you get to the top. It's going to be very, very obvious. Whereas, let's say that the bottom was plumb and square and then you got to the very top and you put some of those tiles up. They, they weren't quite plumb or square. They, they weren't quite lined up exactly perfectly. You wouldn't notice it so much because it's so Much further up to the point that you would spend much more time on that first tile at the very bottom. Or if you're working on the floor, you would make sure that first tile that you put down is very much square with the room and how you want to lay out the other tiles. That very first tile. So much that I would sometimes lay one tile one day, let it completely dry so that I've got basically a cornerstone here that I can measure each and every tile off of. The, The same is true with the foundation If you don't get a foundation right, if you get the foundation wrong, it doesn't matter how well you build the roof, it's going to end up causing problems. You're going to end up seeing cracks. There's going to be fissures in the walls because the foundation is off. Let's say that you get to the top and, well, you don't quite put that shingle on there quite square. Well, then you're not going to have the same problem. It's not going to be as much of an issue as it would be if it was the the very foundation of the very bottom. And that's what I want to argue here: is that these first eleven chapters in the scriptures are foundational. You will see that the authors of scripture go back to these, not as uh, fairy tales, not not as myths, not as while well, you can not as like it's an Aesop's fable where you know we can just learn something from this and we'll teach it to the kids and the kids will will will, will learn from this and learn to be good little boys and girls. But rather, the the very heart of Christianity is tied to many things within these early passages of scripture. Let's look at some of them. Consider uh, regarding Adam and Eve and look at what Jesus says. And this is where you'll begin to run into a problem because if you begin to contradict what Jesus says with your theory of how it is that we need to understand the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you end up having another problem. You have a problem with your Christology. You have a Messiah who was ignorant of the scriptures. You have a Messiah that was ignorant of the stories of the Bible. Let's look at Matthew 19, um, looking at verse 3 through 6. And it says, "...as the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, "'Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause?' He answered, Have you not read that he who created from the beginning them made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, God, what God has joined together, let no man Separate. So they bring to him a question regarding marriage. Can you just divorce your wife for any reason at all? And that was a belief that some of the rabbis were teaching, that for any reason whatsoever, you could legally divorce your wife and send her off. And he brings them back to Adam and Eve, the first marriage, the first couple that was joined together. And he says, what God has joined together, let no man separate, or rather, let not man separate. What sense does this make if this is merely a fairy tale, if this is merely um, just a myth or a legend that people are trusting in? Would you do the same thing with Aesop's fable with Fox and the Grapes? Well, you could use Fox and Grapes as an illustration, but would you base the foundation of divorce as Jesus is teaching here upon Aesop's fables? I think not. Consider this another controversial aspect is uh, that of Noah. Noah. Consider what Jesus says of Noah. It says, Matthew 24, verses 36 to 44. It says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father only. For as were in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away so will be the coming of the son of man then two men will be in the field the one will be taken and the one left two women will be grinding at the mill one will be taken and one left therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your lord is coming but know this that if the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house let his house be broken into Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so he is making a comparison here between the judgment of God upon the earth at the flood that happened during the time of Noah, when Noah and his family were in the ark. He's making a comparison between that story and the final judgment, when the Lord is going to judge the earth. And As a side note, this is a passage that's often used by dispensationalists to support the idea of um, Jesus coming back and rapturing up his church. And so two people are grinding, and one person's taken away, and and one person's left, and two people are working, and one's taken away, and one's left. And some of you perhaps have seen the, the movies where then suddenly cars are flying off of the road because the Lord just caused people to disappear and planes are crashing because the Lord just took people away as they were operating this heavy machinery and these vehicles, and there was crashing and there was turmoil. Um, That would not be the normal understanding of this passage. When you look at the story of Noah and consider the judgment to come, Noah and his family were the ones that were left. It is the others that were judged that the Lord's judgment fell upon that were taken away. So being left in this situation is a positive thing. Being removed in this passage is a negative thing. But I want you to recognize that Jesus makes a comparison between the judgment to come and the story of Noah and the flood. And he says it's going to be like that time, like that time, speaking of a time when people existed and people were just going on with their lives, And they had no concern of God. They had no concern of their sin. They had no concern of how their sin was affecting other people. And God judged the world because of their sin and their violence. And it's going to be the same way, Jesus says, at the final judgment. When the Lord returns and he judges people, they will just be going on with their lives with no real concern. There's a man that got in a lot of trouble, and his name is Peter Enns. I've mentioned him before, but he was a, a very decent commentary, commentator in many ways. He wrote a commentary on Exodus that I gleaned much from, especially historically. I found him to be very useful in that regard. He was useful in uh, helping me to see some of the, you know, biblical theology and biblical themes that were flowing throughout the book of Exodus. But Peter ends ended up walking. Off into liberal land, and he walked off into liberal land because he came to a conclusion that the Pentateuch was not written by Moses or even in the time of Moses, but most of it or much of it was written um, after the time of the exile. And they come to these conclusions by running things through um, computers and looking at the computers and seeing what the computers print out, and then they deduce that well, since this writing style is different over here than it is over here. It must be someone else that wrote this. Now, the truth is you can run authors' works through these computers and you can find known authors who the computer is claiming didn't write the things that they actually wrote. But you have this passage here. Look at John 5, 46 and 47. It says, But if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? And Peter ends got pushed on this because he had this. I think it's called the document hypothesis. And they looked at the Pentateuch and they've split it up in in these different ways. And there's been many of these theories over the years. I think many decades ago there was this theory that like the priest wrote one part, and then um, you know some prophets wrote another part, and Moses wrote another part, and they then there was this other part they didn't know who had written that part. And this is a more modern version of that, but. Peter Enns makes this point in response to being pressed on this uh, passage, John five forty six and 47, in how it seems to contradict his view of the Pentateuch. This is what Jesus said. Jesus attributed the writing of the Pentateuch to Moses, and he says this, "...although treating this issue fully would take us far afield, I should mention at least the common line of defense for Mosaic authorship. Jesus seems to attribute authorship of the Pentateuch to Moses." I do not think, however, that this presents a clear counterpoint, mainly because even the most ardent defenders of Mosaic authorship today acknowledge that some of the Pentateuch reflects updating, but taken at face value, this is not a position that Jesus seems to leave room for. And so you see Peter ends taking a position here, saying that, well, certainly Jesus was wrong. Jesus was incorrect about who wrote the Pentateuch. And you can believe in Mosaic authorship, by the way, and you can still have room to say that, well, it doesn't mean that he necessarily wrote his funeral. Sure, the Lord could have revealed that to him and he could have written it, but it's also reasonable that someone at the time wrote it. It's a completely another another thing when you begin to say that the Pentateuch was written during the time of the exile um, many centuries later. Or what's worse, you begin to say that the Son of God, the Messiah that the Lord's Given to us was ignorant on the very scriptures that he was teaching from the scriptures that he said point to him. That's that's a very incredible thing uh, to say. Um, John five forty six and forty seven is to be understood as building upon historical judgments of authorship. He this is this is where it's grounded. Um, that's that's just the reality that is there. Let's think of Noah. Noah's another controversial um, story. It's one that people like to make into fairy tales. Let's be honest. Some of the children's stories you can walk into. I mean, how many times do you walk into a church building into the children's area? And of course, I mean, children like animals. So why wouldn't you have a picture of an ark on the wall and all of the animals that are there? And I think. Uh, Answers in Genesis does a good job with this in their Creation Museum and in their Ark Museum. They do a really good job of emphasizing the just the foolishness of what we do with this story. This is a terrible story. This is an incredible story. This is a story where God's judgment has fallen upon the earth. Everyone died. All of humanity died except for those that were inside of the Ark. That's the story. All of the land animals died. All the birds died, except for those that were within the ark. Only those in the sea are the ones that remain. This is a great and incredible story. This is something that should give us pause. This is something that, as we saw, according to Jesus, is pointing to the judgment that is to come. This is a serious thing. It is going to fall upon all people everywhere. If you're not within the ark, which is Christ Jesus, if you're not covered by the blood of Christ Jesus, if he is not your ark, then the wrath of God will fall upon you, and you will fall, and you will be crushed under that wrath. This is a serious, serious story. So it it does not make sense to have smiling giraffes and lions and those such things. Um, It just trivializes the whole idea. And it also emphasizes this idea that it's just this myth or this story or this legend. Let's look at what the Apostle Peter says, Peter 3:18 through22, "For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. You see Peter here here tying aspects of your salvation, your sanctification, to that which is pointed to from the flood at the time of Noah, this is something that's very important. He's not pointing this out just as a myth or as a legend. Let's look at Second Peter two, four through 10. Peter writes, "For God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment." For if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the righteous, the, the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Once again, you see him tying numerous accounts in the book of Genesis and connecting them with realities that Christians are to be trusting in, that you are to remember that God saved Noah and his family so God can save you as well. You can remember that God judged the world in the flood. You can remember that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. You can remember that God saved, as it says here, righteous Lot we don't talk about him that way many times but he needs to be we need to recognize that he was one who was trusting in the messiah to come he is one who was saved from the wrath of god and this is this is something that you're to to trust in based upon these stories that are in the scriptures that the writers believe to be true accounts not not symbolic these aren't literary devices you don't see a change in writing style when you get to Genesis 12 and then go onward. You have the same writing style going from the beginning of Genesis all the way through the end. Look at Jesus in regard to the Sabbath, Mark 2, 27 and 28. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is pointing, hearkening you back to this creation ordinance that was given. Um... And again, uh, we, have, we have the Pharisees coming forward to Jesus. Mark 10, beginning in verse 2, the Pharisees came to him. And in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made male and female. This is what we're talking about here in the very first um, portion here of this chapter four. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Again, Jesus is hearkening back, going back to creation. God made male and female. God made man and woman. He is calling them to act in certain ways because of what God has done. And this is communicated in these early parts of Genesis. Consider the genealogy of Jesus. I'm not going to read through the whole thing, but Luke here begins in verse 23. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Healy, the son of Matthot, the son of Levi. Okay, and then I'm I put a little ellipses there, but then look, we have many in this line, but then we have many that are here recorded in the early pages of scripture. The son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Look at how Luke brings us all the way back. Jesus' genealogy. I'm not going to get into, you know, whether or not there are other names in the midst of this. That's not really the point to walk through here. There's actually many places that we're going to walk through here that are maybe considered by some to be somewhat controversial passages. I'm not here to exegete the passages at the moment. I'm here to emphasize the fact that these authors spoke of these as historical truths, as historical realities. You see him beginning here saying that he was supposed to be the son of Joseph, he was the son of Heli, and then he goes all the way down and he brings it all the way back to Adam. He doesn't make a distinction here. He, he's not as though he's somehow going into an allegory. He just lists them all from beginning to end, or rather we could say from end to beginning, because that's what, that's what Luke does. Um, the author doesn't make any distinction from beginning to end. Regarding the devil, you see Jesus speak of Satan. Satan arises very early in the pages of Scripture. Genesis 3, John eight forty four. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We see Jesus speaking of Satan here. Let's think about what the Apostle Paul, what does the Apostle Paul say of Adam and Eve? Overwhelmingly, we see very important Christian doctrines, very foundational Christian doctrines tied into the historicity of Adam and Eve. Paul bases an incredible incredible Christian doctrine here. On Adam in Romans chapter 5. And this is the federal headship of Adam. And from that, we also have the federal headship of Jesus. And look at how Paul interacts with this. And he doesn't speak of him as though this is a myth or some symbolic story that we're gleaning something from. He speaks of Adam as being a person who lived and existed and sinned, and his sin affected other people. If we're looking at humanity as just evolving from animals, this this passage doesn't make any sense. You have got to do so much gymnastics theologically and historically if you begin to have an idea that man somehow evolved from from animals. Romans 5, beginning in verse 12, it says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because All sinned. Again, he's talking here about that one man. That one man that he speaks of here is Adam. Sin came into the world through Adam. Death came about because Adam sinned. That was the consequences of his sin is that he would die. That's what the Lord told him. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those who were sinning, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. You see Paul there emphasizing this doctrine of federal headship. Adam is one who represented all of humanity. We see that example that is given, like with David, when he stands before Goliath. And Goliath is representing the Philistines, and David is representing the Israelites. And they go to battle one with another, and whoever wins... It's going to be as though that side won the war, even though many of them will not even lift a sword, will not even go forward and fight the others. And when David wins and defeats Goliath, the Philistines are defeated because David is representing all of them. And Goliath was their federal head, and when he fell, it was as though all of them lost the battle to the Israelites. And that's the picture that is here. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. This is very important. He is a type. He was an actual person. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more will have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, that abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one's trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see Paul bringing many different doctrines together here within this passage, bringing in this idea of the, the imputation of Adam's sin, the imputation of our sin to Christ, the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us, And he's beginning all of this, he's beginning all of this with the fact that Adam was one who existed and Adam was a person. Let me finish that passage. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, speaking of Adam as a historical person who lived and existed and sinned and fell, So the one act of righteousness leads to the justification of life for all men. Again, pointing to Jesus Christ, a historical man who represented his people. And again, we understand here when he's saying all, the condemnation for all men, we understand that all who came from the line of Adam were dead in their sins. All right, That was the condemnation for all of them. And one act of righteousness leads to the justification of life for all men. We don't understand that to mean that Jesus died for the sins of every single person, or every single person was justified, but rather we understand that all of those who are in the line of Christ, all of those who are under Christ Jesus, which is why Christ could be born, and he was not under Adam, for he didn't come from the line of Adam. Continuing, it says, but as for the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made sinners. Righteous? What does this do for the doctrine of imputed sin and righteousness if Adam was not a true person? What is Paul talking about? Why would you use someone like this as an argument for such a crucial and central aspect of the Christian message? We see Paul do that again in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. It says, For by, for by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Again, he's pointing to Adam as a real person, as a historical figure. Again, in 44 through uh, 44 through 49 in 1 Corinthians 15. Excellent passage, by the way, for an understanding of uh, Christ in his federal headship and the resurrection. Begin verse 44, it is sown a natural body, it is raised in a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Again, Adam in Christ is what this is pointing to. That's why we call Christ the second Adam. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of the dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Saying that you were born in Adam, you were born dead in your trespasses and sins. You were born totally depraved and affected by sin. But in Christ you're made alive, you're made in his image, you're like Christ. Um, Paul makes a distinction between genders, and he makes the distinction in, in multiple places in his writings. And he makes a distinction based upon the historicity of the early chapters of Genesis, 1 Corinthians 11, 7 through 12. For man ought to not not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made for from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as the woman was made from the man, so man is not born of woman. So man is, is now born of woman, and now all things are from God. I'm not going to exegete this passage. Uh, I did preach over this passage, and there's some, there's some, there's some aspects of this passage that are, that are certainly interesting, but what I'm emphasizing on this passage is the fact that Paul is making this argument to the Corinthians that there should be an order and structure in the church, there should be an order and structure um, in their families, and this should exist because of this story that we find early in the pages of scripture. He's basing it on an actual historical story um, again, we see Paul do this again, Ephesians 5 28 through 33. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. But as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. He's quoting this. This is coming from the book of Genesis. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church however let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband again he's going back to the story that we have in creation in instructing husband and wife and how it is that they should be interacting one with another you see Paul doing this as well in regard to leadership in the church again he's going back to the early pages of Genesis he's going back to a creation account he's saying we know this to be true Therefore, that is why this is so in the church. 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach. Or To exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet; for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in love and holiness with self control Again, you see Paul giving this instruction in the church, and he 's grounding it once again on the the historicity of the early pages of Genesis, Hebrews chapter eleven. I want you to see this. We have this very important chapter in the book of Hebrews where the writer of Hebrews is walking through the lives of many important figures in the Old Testament and is talking of the fact that they were saved by faith, that they were men of faith, they were trusting by faith. Um, Hebrews chapter 11, 1 through, 1 through 7, but you don't see a distinction. It's not as though as you get to verse 8 and then onward, they suddenly change how it is that they are they are writing, let's look at that, Hebrews eleven one through 7 Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts... And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning the events yet, as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness. That comes by faith, and you see the writer of Hebrews speaking of these 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 men in the past as actually existing, as as pointing them as a people who had faith, pointing out the fact that salvation by grace and through faith is something that has existed since the very beginning. There never was a time when people were being saved by their works, all right, or gaining a righteousness to themselves um, through their own works after Adam fell. It, it was not possible. It has always come by grace and through faith that was required. I want to close with this this passage that we see in, in Peter, which we read last time, which is an argument against, it's supposed to be uniformitarianism, and so I did not spell it correctly, but uniformitarianism is this idea that it has things have always been as they are. They've always been exactly as they are right now and they have, they have never changed. I know that's distracting some of you, so I'm changing it. Um, but the idea that you know, example that we use, this is a common idea in science. You know, a scientist comes and he steps up to the Grand Canyon and he sees this huge canyon. It's going on for miles. It's very deep. It's very wide. And there's a river at the bottom of it. And the scientist says, "Well, there's a river here. The river's flowing at this rate. Right. I can assume this." has always been flowing and so I can deduce that this canyon is 1.8 billion years old, which I think is the estimation that is given there that this river has been flowing for 1.8 billion years, which is an incredible assumption to make, not taking into account that something cataclysmic could have happened, which we've seen in other places. We gave the example of Mount St. Helens where there was a, you know, Mount St. Helens exploded and in one day there was a giant canyon that was formed now, it wasn't as large as the Grand Canyon. It was like a 40th of the size. But the point is that if you just walked up to it and you saw that canyon, and saw a river flowing in it, you could come to the same conclusion and say, well, this river's just been flowing for this long, and so I know this is how long it's taken to form. You know, I can see the stratification in the walls, but the reality is that's not what happened. There was something cataclysmic that happened that the side of a mountain exploded and caused this canyon to come into existence. That's the reality of what happened. We have it on film. And this is this idea of uniformitarianism. And it bleeds itself into religion. It bleeds itself into the way in which people live. People say, hey, I've gone away. Things have been fine as they are. I've not had any issue. People have this issue with their sin. They get away with sin. They get away with more sin. No one noticed this time. And I can keep going deeper and deeper and deeper in this downward spiral of sin because no one's really noticing. God isn't recognizing this and peter gives a warning here that they're assuming that things are just going to continue as they are but just as it was in the time of noah things are going to be during the time of the judgment let's look there second peter 3 and 3 through 10 It says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will see where is the promise of his coming. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so he's saying that these people are going to continue as they are and say, hey, it's just going to keep going as it is. Nothing's really going to change. There's not going to be a judgment. This is an exact argument that many people will make nowadays but look at this. He says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by the means of these, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. He is saying that uniformitarianism is foolishness because there was a flood and it was cataclysmic and it was immediate. And it, it made things change very, very quickly. And specifically, it caused people to fall into the judgment of God. There was a time where God allowed their sins to build up. And there's a time when God said, no more. He's saying, don't overlook this fact. This is the fact that they're overlooking. He's not saying this is just a, 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 a myth and a fairy tale. He's saying this is a reality. And this is pointing forward to the truth that God is going to judge the world. He continues that, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that what the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, that all should reach repentance. But the day, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the, wor- and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He's bringing you to a place to see... That This judgment is coming. This is a reality. And you need to be mindful of this judgment that is coming and not say things are going to be fine. I can go on as I, as I am because I've been, everything's been fine so far. No one's caught me in my sin. He's saying, no, you, the Lord's going to, you're going to get caught. You're not hiding anything. The Lord is allowing you to continue in this. But judgment is being stored up over you. So just as those were judged at the flood, you will be judged by fire, Waldron makes this point, and I've I've cut out a portion of this because um, he, he gets a little violent in this quote. But he's, he makes this point. He says the fact that one day cannot, the fact that one cannot neatly remove Genesis one through eleven from the biblical organism, it is li- it is not like removing scaffolding on a building after a paint job is finished. It is rather like retching the head from a living animal. Similarly, Genesis 1-11 through 11 cannot be wrenched from the Bible without leaving the organism of biblical authority oozing with proof of violence of such act. It cannot be wrung from the rest of the Bible without wasting biblical authority in biblical religion. And that is exactly where the framers were grounded. The framers recognized the historicity of the early pages of Scripture, the, the idea that... Um, Things just kind of came and things evolved. You know, the the man came from from other things. These are not ideas that only came about with Darwin. These are ideas that Greeks were believing and seeing the interconnectivity of all things that are in existence. The framers were aware of these other ideas, and they dismissed them. They did not believe them. They looked at the scriptures in Genesis 1 through 11. They looked at the creation narrative and saw the Lord made the earth in six days and rested on the seventh, and that's what they're confessing. And that's what we confess here as well, because it is so crucial, so crucially grounded in what the writers of scripture say. It's so crucially grounded in the words of Jesus that we compromise so many crucial doctrines when we dismiss the validity of these early pages of scripture. And we dismiss even the words of Jesus. So you end up with a problem even of your Christology, which we saw in the biblical scholar Peter Innes, where he just dismissed the words of Jesus. This one that you're claiming is the means through which you are saved. This one that you're claiming is the one who is the wisdom of God you're claiming came down and didn't even know who wrote of him, didn't even know who wrote Deuteronomy, didn't know who wrote Numbers and spoke of the Messiah to come. That's incredibly foolish and that's incredibly arrogant. And that's that's gonna cause many other problems in, in religion. These early pages are a historical account and I think we've given sufficient evidence that the writing style is the same throughout it. It doesn't go from being poetic to being narrative later on. It is narrative throughout the whole time. It is historical narrative. And furthermore, we see that the writers of Scripture believe this. The apostles believe this, and we see that Jesus believed this. And we could go to many other accounts that we didn't bring up throughout the totality of Scripture and find many that pointed to these stories being accurate and historical. And so you end up having a problem with Christianity as a whole if you're going to dismiss these early and foundational portions, and you're going to end up building upon it a religion that's going to have great problems at the top and will fall under the judgment of God.